1: Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
2: Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com.
3: During that eight and a half minutes, the acceleration force changes quite a bit. We're at three G's. So it feels like someone that weighs three times as much as you is is sitting on your chest. And then at eight and a half minutes into the flight, the engine's cut off and you're in zero gravity. And it's a very traumatic transition, you know, where all of a sudden things start floating up and including your, your arms. It's just very dramatic at that point.
4: That's former astronaut, Dr. Ellen Ochoa, who in 1993 became the first Latina in space. She's describing the intense feelings of liftoff. And it's a moment she knows well from both sides of the console because Dr. Ochoa also served as director of NASA's Johnson Space Center. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Dr. Ochoa's love of science has taken her to the heights, literally. But it wasn't always an easy trip. When she was a girl, there were no women astronauts to model herself after. And when she was in college, pursuing advanced degrees, some professors openly tried to discourage her from that path. She persevered, of course, and went on to become the first Hispanic person to run the Johnson Space Center the hub of America's human spaceflight program. Listen and learn why Dr. Ellen Ochoa is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm so thrilled to be here today with Dr. Ellen Ochoa. She was the first Latina in space. She's flown four times in space and logged over a thousand hours in orbit. What a record, Dr. Ochoa. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you. Dr. Ochoa, you became the first Latina astronaut in 1993. You spent nine days aboard the space shuttle Discovery, uh, which we all remember so well. And I've often wondered, watching a liftoff, being as nervous in the countdown as probably anybody watching, what's it like? What's it like to lift off? What's the experience like in space? I would imagine your training tries to prepare you for just about any eventuality. And I wonder when you were orbiting, did anything surprise you on your voyages?
3: Well, you're right. It is uh, just an amazing experience, really different than anything else. And uh, the launch itself, uh, which is just the the first eight and a half minutes of the flight, is something that we spend a, a lot of time training for because It's so dynamic, and and that is a period of time when a lot of things might go wrong, and we have to be prepared for it. Um, During that eight and a half minutes, uh, the acceleration force changes quite a bit. Um, For uh, probably about two and a half minutes of it, we're at three Gs. So it feels like someone that weighs three times as much as you is, is sitting on your chest. So it can make a little bit hard to breathe or a little bit hard to reach up if you had to, had to move a switch or something like that. Oh my. But even uh, the first two and a half minutes, the solid rocket uh, motors are firing and they have quite a bit of vibration. And uh, so then when they separate away, uh, not only does that vibration go away, but you go back down to just a little over 1G at that point. And I remember that it felt like we had just stopped which seemed like a really bad thing in the middle of a launch. But it was really just all that sensation of acceleration and the vibration went away. And then uh, the liquid engines on the uh, orbiter itself uh, g- kept us running um, and accelerated us back up to three Gs again. And then um, at eight and a half minutes into the flight, uh, the engines cut off and you're in zero gravity. And it's a very dramatic. Uh, uh, transition, you know, where all of a sudden, you know, things start floating up and including your your arms. And uh, so uh, it's just uh, uh, very dramatic at that point. And then you, uh, you know, there's a lot to do, but you settle in. And one of the things that, um, you know, was obviously uh, the impetus for me really wanting to do this was because we were up there to do things that benefited people on earth. On my first two flights, We were studying the Earth's atmosphere, and particularly the uh, issue of ozone hole and the ozone depletion. And I was in charge of the science experiments uh, on my shift. And then my third and fourth flights were part of building the International Space Station, which is this uh, amazing laboratory in space. We've had uh, astronauts and cosmonauts up there continuously for over 20 years now. Involved in, we've done actually thousands of different kinds of science and technology development, uh, research and activities, and over a hundred countries have been involved in some way. So really, just an amazing project to be part of. The, the two big things that, of course, are are really so different are the fact that you're working in a zero gravity environment, or as we call it, microgravity, because it's maybe not quite zero, but. Um, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, you're floating the whole time, everything that you're dealing with that isn't, you know, strapped down is floating as well. So you just have to get used to it. Some things are easier. Some things are harder. Uh, Obviously, moving a a heavy piece of equipment is a lot easier uh, in space when it's floating as well. Um, But you really have to keep track of everything that you're working with so it doesn't float away and get lost. And then the second big thing is, is just the view of the Earth, which is just incredible. Uh, we orbit the Earth every hour and a half. So you're seeing you know all parts of the globe over and over again, uh, both in daylight and nighttime. And uh, over my four flights, I got to see it in different seasons as well. And I just never get tired of that.
4: <laughs> oh, I can just imagine. And your description is so vivid. When you look down and see planet Earth, do you have that sense of how small and vulnerable we are and how precious our planet is to be taken care of?
3: So I would t- on my first flight in particular, I mentioned we were studying the Earth's atmosphere and we actually needed to uh, be up on the flight deck and videotape every sunrise and every sunset. And this was part of a science experiment uh, that was actually using the sun during these Uh, points in time to, uh, as a light source, to measure constituents in the atmosphere. So I I would look out and I would see this very, very thin atmosphere, you know, um, across the limb of the earth. And just thinking about how that was the only thing keeping us alive. If we didn't have that atmosphere, uh, none of us (laughs) would be there on earth. And it really did make um, life seem fragile. Um, And very precious. And of course, as you look down on the earth, you, you know, we cross the United States in 10 minutes. Um, You just you don't see the kinds of boundaries and divisions that um, humans have artificially uh, put up all over the earth. And it does make you feel much more in tune with the planet as a whole. Absolutely.
4: That's such a beautiful reflection and and something um, I think so profound for all of us to try and grasp and understand. Let's start from the beginning. When did you know you wanted to become an astronaut? Was there something in your childhood or upbringing that made you want to pursue a career in space?
3: Well I I was 11 when the Apollo 11 astronauts landed on the moon and of course I was following along I mean the whole country was actually uh, really the whole world it was such an amazing accomplishment but you know there were no women astronauts at the time and um really any time you heard about NASA at all you you really didn't see any women or um really any minorities um and I just It it never occurred to me at that time, and it wouldn't have occurred to anybody else to ask an 11-year-old girl if that was something she wanted to grow up and do. So I certainly wasn't headed for it at that time. Uh, In in high school, probably my favorite subjects were music and and my literature classes, but also math. I always liked math and did well. And as I went to college, uh, I hadn't quite decided what I wanted to do, but I continued in music and I continued in math. And it was really the math that took me toward the science because I wanted to understand how you use that math you know in practical ways to 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 solve problems and uh you know just of course, even still, there were very few women in uh, math science and engineering fields and I ended up uh talking to a couple professors. I was going to San Diego State University this was our local university at uh, living at home and uh I talked to a professor in the electrical engineering department and just told him I was interested in finding out more about the subject and, you know, thinking of trying to head more in a technical field like that. And he was clearly not interested in having me in his <laughs> department. Uh, he said, you know, well, we had women come through here once, but, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult course of study. And I just really don't know that it's something that you'd be interested in, Mm -hmm. which was ironic because I had set up the meeting to find out more about it. But, you know, fortunately, I uh, got quite a different reception from the physics professor that I talked to. He. He seemed excited that I was interested in learning about physics. He told me about various different careers that people could have when they'd studied physics, which was hugely important to me because I didn't know any scientists or engineers, and I really couldn't picture on my own uh, what you did with a physics degree. And, uh, and then he said, well, tell me a little bit about your math background. And I said, well, I'm finishing up the calculus series now, and I, you know, I have the top grade in the class. And he said, Well, that's fantastic because that's the language of physics. And if you started into the physics series next semester, uh, you'd be able to concentrate on the concepts because you already know the language. And most of the students in the class will be learning them simultaneously. He said, I think you do really well. And, uh, you know, I often tell that story when I'm talking to students and others First of all, to impress on them how important what you say to people <laughs> um, Absolutely. is. And then also to just note, you know, the times that I have been discouraged in my life are generally from people who don't know me at all, right? They don't know what I can bring, uh, hard work, uh, intelligence, you know, dedication, interest. Um, whereas the people that have encouraged me in general throughout my life, um, Starting with my mom, but certainly with um, a lot of teachers and professors and and supervisors, um, you know, they got to know me and they were encouraging me and and even pushing me at, at times when I wasn't um, necessarily even thinking of the next step. So um, you've got to find those people that that support you and that know you and understand the important qualities um, that you can bring.
4: Absolutely, and what an important lesson, even to convey to those who are in a position. you know, I keep thinking of what Professor Putdown must have been like for you, listening <laughs> to him, and um, so discouraging uh, and yes. then how wonderful the your physics professor had a different, very helpful view. Were there any particular obstacles that you had to overcome besides what you mentioned about some people not being particularly encouraging, were there other barriers in your path that made it a difficult way to go forward?
3: Well, I think, fortunately, at every step, I did have people that supported me. But of course, I I continued to run into people who, you know, just didn't see me, someone like me as a scientist or engineer. Um, I know, for example, I went off to Stanford for graduate school, and there was a particular professor I was interested in working with. And I did end up becoming His graduate student um, joining his research group, and he was fantastic, um, Dr. Joe Goodman. And to this day, I'm in touch with him. And I also had a wonderful um, associate advisor. Um, But just to get into the uh, Ph.D. program, you have to pass a test um, to be admitted into the program. And uh, the way it was done in the electrical engineering department at Stanford was um, each student had Ten different um, sessions one on one with uh, ten different professors, twelve minutes each, and those professors could ask any question they wanted. Um, but it's it's a format that I'm sure as we all look back now, um, is kind of a terrible format if particularly if you're trying to address either unconscious bias or in this case conscious bias uh, because a friend of mine, Um, The week before this test, I heard one of the professors in the department telling another one, well, I've never passed a woman on this test and I never will. They don't belong in our department. And when you're one on one, nothing written, it's all oral. You might write something on a whiteboard, but then it gets erased at the end of your session. It's pretty easy um, for someone to uh, mark whatever score that they want. And, uh, you know, there's no way to contest or back that up. Um, fortunately, uh, this professor wasn't one of the one, that one of the ones that I talked to, uh, but it made me, it just startled me and it made me think, well, how many professors that I might talk to during this test might have the same view. I just, uh, you know, it just really uh, caught me off guard. Although I, I probably should have realized that, um, certainly there were people that thought that. But in any case, I I did get through that test. And as I said, I was really fortunate to have great advisors who helped me along the way. Um, But I will say, you know, just getting a PhD, uh, it's a test of perseverance. uh, And so certainly there were times along the way when my research wasn't going very well. And I would think, you know, maybe there's something easier that I could do (laughs) where where i Maybe um, more assured of actually uh, graduating and and getting an advanced degree, but uh, I stuck with it and, um, you know, had opportunities then in uh, uh, national labs and in a NASA research position uh, before I was selected as an astronaut. And I would probably just say the main obstacle there was the thousands of other people who were applying as well. I, you know, when I decided to apply, I just thought, well, there's no way NASA's ever going to find my application amongst the thousands that come in. But, you know, I'll go ahead and do it anyway, just just to say that I did. (laughs) Well, perseverance clearly paid off.
4: And obviously, you're not just pioneering in the field, but someone who has enormous talent, skills, and abilities to have gotten through all of those gauntlets, uh, because clearly, just listening to you, lesser folks may have bailed out a lot earlier. It sounds like it's it's really rather Herculean to overcome some of that. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear
0: will be back after this short break. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class.
2: Put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, you were
4: the first Hispanic director and second female director at NASA's Johnson Space Center, which we all hear so much about, such a famous place. What did that involve? It seems like that, too, must have been just an enormous challenge. Did you come in with a vision for the Space Center, or how did your work there evolve?
3: It it was a challenge, uh, but also a huge privilege, because we just have this amazing team at Johnson Space Center. You know, it's the home of of human spaceflight for the country. Um, uh, You know, I just remember... (laughs) the first time I ever stepped foot on Johnson space center, which was the first time I got to interview for the astronaut program. And it, it just almost felt like hallowed ground, right. Uh, because mm-hmm. of, 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 the history there. Uh, so, you know, I think for any leader, um, you know, you, you, have two main goals, uh, accomplish the mission and, and take care of your people. And you have to do that in the context of, of what is going on at the time that you're director. And so, Um, I became director very end of uh, 2012, the beginning of 2013. Uh, We'd finished assembling the International Space Station. So in that realm, uh, our challenge was to um, essentially make it as productive as possible while keeping it safe for our astronauts and really focus on You know, how much science and technology that we could accomplish, what we could get into space, what we could test, and, um, and really ramping up in that way. Um, but I would say that the biggest context was there were all these new players in human spaceflight, right? Um, we had, uh, SpaceX, um, developing some capabilities, and there were a number of other uh, companies working on some capabilities, including, um, Blue Origin. And so, we really had to think about how do we evolve so that uh, we have our role, which will be unique going forward in human spaceflight, and we're able to accommodate these new partners and sort of, uh, you know, marry up the best uh, of all of these partners so that we can move forward with the exploration of space. And eventually we knew that really low Earth orbit would would probably be essentially the purview of uh, commercial companies as NASA pushed forward into space to the lunar vicinity and onto Mars. So a lot of it was, uh, I, I started up a, essentially a change management initiative, uh, called it JSC 2.0. Um, but it was important to think of it that way because it wasn't about, you know, throwing out all the experience that we gained. It was about building on it and also embracing new ways of doing business. So uh, a big part of what I tried to do was work with my management team, but also uh, really with every single person that worked at the Johnson Space Center about, you know, how do we uh, incorporate new technology, some of which we develop, but a lot of which uh, may be developed outside um, our boundaries. How do we develop new partnerships Um, How do we incorporate uh, new ways of thinking into how we do our business so that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, we're still leading human spaceflight, but we have this amazing uh, group of partners that we are working in concert with. And so that was really what I focused on during my time as director.
4: I know that you're also a very forceful advocate for getting more Latinas into STEM fields. It seems like forever we're talking about the need for more girls and women to embrace the STEM fields. Why is this so important, important to you? And do women bring anything special to the field, to science and to tech?
3: Well, I think it's important to not just to me personally, but to NASA, to the country to get... Uh, People into STEM who have traditionally been very underrepresented. So that would include women, but it includes a lot of underrepresented groups as well. Um, You know, uh, Latinos, uh, Blacks, uh, members of some of the indigenous groups. Um, They, you know, you just don't, didn't, and still don't to the extent, anywhere near the extent to which they exist in our population, see them going into STEM fields. So we're missing out. Because, you know, talent is everywhere across all demographics and all geographic regions. Talent is everywhere. Um, as director of Johnson Space Center, I want to attract the best minds. And uh, we're not going to be doing that if we're sort of limited um, in in who we are reaching out to, who we're bringing in, and then who we're developing once they come in. And, of course, there's uh, been lots of research over the last particularly the last couple of decades or so about when you have people with a diversity of backgrounds and experiences and and thought processes, uh, particularly as you're trying to solve problems or think about new ways of doing things, you're going to have better results when you, when you do have a diverse team. And I wanted to make sure that, we uh, took advantage of that and that we did have diverse teams because we certainly have lots of incredibly interesting and difficult challenges uh, when you think about human space flight. And of course, for my own experience, um, you know, I know how it feels to sort of be discounted or ignored, um, you know, talked over in meetings. So a lot of my focus as well was just, uh, Working on making our environment at Johnson Space Center even more inclusive, where everybody, no matter who they were, would feel respected and feel valued, um, uh, would feel open to uh, bringing their ideas, speaking up, asking questions. And this wasn't only important for innovation and for solving problems, but it's incredibly important for safety, as you can imagine, um, because we're trying to keep people safe uh, every moment of every day. Who are living in a very remote and a hazardous environment. And if someone doesn't feel like they're going to be listened to, we may miss out on a comment, um, some information, a question that could directly affect the safety of our astronauts or our space assets. So really imperative that we have a very welcoming environment at Johnson Space Center.
4: You know, it's always struck me watching the news uh, when there's been a breakthrough or something happens in space, just as it was planned to. There seems to be an amazing esprit de corps when the camera flashes on uh, the Johnson Space Center. It just it has always struck me as people involved together collegially in pulling off something remarkable
3: you know that's one of the things i loved about working as, at nasa and and of course specifically at johnson space center was uh we we are a team and and we have a a joint mission and people are so dedicated to that mission um they they work hard uh you know they will do whatever it takes to help make that mission successful and you know then we when we do accomplish things uh you know we get to celebrate together and a big part of of really what I wanted to do was make sure that every single person um, at johnson Space center could could take pride and could celebrate in those successes and you know often you see people in mission control and of course they're they're sort of often the ones that' sort of at the tip of the spear along with the crew in making that happen but uh you know I wanted to make sure that our folks who worked in the um, financial office and, and in the procurement office and in human resources and our legal offices realized how important their roles were as well. You need all of that to be successful. And that was one of the things I enjoyed most about being center director was, you know, really seeing how all the parts come together to make it happen.
4: And such a profound lesson, really important. You know, you'd been talking some about the, uh, Diversity advantage, and in your own life, as you have already talked about, uh, women were barred from becoming astronauts, certainly, when you saw the landing on the moon. That was the case, but NASA now is talking about putting the first woman on the moon. Is that true, and have we made enough progress in this realm
3: what is what What's left to be done? <laughs> Well, certainly during the 30 years I was at NASA, there was uh, a lot of progress uh, in terms of women um, and, and uh, at, at definitely some in terms of other represented groups as well. Um, I will have to say my very first job at NASA, which was as a research engineer a couple of years before I was selected as an astronaut, um, even in that position, uh, I saw more women than I had seen in my previous job or in graduate school or even in undergrad because uh, of the fields that I was in. So NASA had already started um, sort of making an effort to attract and employ uh, a diversity of people. Uh, maybe earlier than a lot of uh, companies had done at that time. And NASA continued to make progress during the 30 years that I was there. So, um, in fact, one of my astronaut classmates, Eileen Collins, was the first woman Mm -hmm. to command a space shuttle mission. And then, of course, we saw um, women commanding the International Space Station and at Johnson Space Center, um, not only being flight directors, but the chief of the flight director office right now is a woman. Um, and during my tenure, the, the head of our, the director of engineering, which is the largest group that we have at Johnson space center, uh, very, a very talented woman. engineer. Um, we, there's a, a couple of other centers now that have, uh, women center directors and, um, And and in fact, right now, the head of all of human spaceflight at NASA, which is a position at NASA headquarters, is headed by a woman for the first time. So so you're you're you know, you're seeing a lot of progress um, in many areas. But, uh, you know, you still don't see women uh, in in the STEM workforce uh, to the extent that they exist in the population. And the fact that you kind of need to talk about we're going to put the first woman on the moon or we have the first spacewalk with two women. Um, just shows that we're still building up to that point where it's no longer a first, where it's routine, and and women are contributing in the same way as men.
4: You know, and we all long for the days when this conversation about being the first is no longer necessary, and uh, we are all in this together in the same way in a level playing field. But it does matter so much, particularly to aspiring Girls and women to see somebody doing these things who is you know a woman, because if you don't see it, you don't think it's possible, and you've broken ground in so many ways, and I'm sure provided so much inspiration. We're almost out of time, and i I just want to ask you this has been a a difficult time for our country, for the world in many ways, but especially given the pandemic and the toll it's taken. I wonder in times like these. What gives you hope? You've had such an extraordinary career that continues obviously, but are there reflections about what keeps you going and what gives you hope even in times that may not be the most auspicious?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, maybe I'll just mention a couple. The way uh we were able to develop a vaccine so quickly and that built on decades of research, <laughs> you know, into actually how to uh know, replicate genetic material and how you can understand uh, the genetic code of of a new virus and uh, how you can actually uh, develop a vaccine in a new and different way than we ever had before with this messenger RNA. And and it's a godsend. And I'm so thrilled and thankful uh, to be fully vaccinated at this point. Um, And the other thing that I'll mention is I'll I'll go back to space, which is over the last year, some of the most exciting moments for me have been seeing uh, some of the milestones in space, um, some of which uh, I got to work on when I was still at NASA. For example, um, the Crew Dragon vehicle by SpaceX taking NASA astronauts to and from the International Space Station. Um, That was a a service that we were working toward uh, certainly the whole time I was at Johnson Space Center. Um, and moving forward, going back to the moon with the Artemis program, you already talked a little bit about it, the one that's going to be putting the first woman on the moon, has been making um, various different milestones over the last year, including um, a big firing of all the, all the test firing of all the engines um, just in the last uh, month or two. And then, of course, in space science with Mars Perseverance uh, launched and then landed on on Mars and just more recently, the the flights of the helicopter Ingenuity, um, those were all uh, approved and in work when I was still at NASA and in meetings at NASA headquarters. And to see them actually happen and be so successful and so exciting and really uh, so many people following along, uh, I've just loved that.
4: Well. Thank you so much. I I think we could go on talking uh, for much of the day because it's so illuminating to listen to you. It's inspiring. It's informative. I I feel like, certainly speaking for myself, but I'm sure for many of our listeners, we feel like we had a ride into space with you. And that's something truly special. Thank you so much for what you have done for our country uh, and what you've achieved and for the profound reflections you've left with us today. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Talk about aiming high and making it.
4: Here are three things I took away from that conversation. First, for any of us to succeed, we need to surround ourselves with people who believe in us. While some of Dr. Ochoa's college professors tried to discourage her from pursuit of the sciences, others acted as guides and mentors. As Dr. Ochoa says, you've got to find those people who support you and that understand the important qualities you bring to the table. Second, as we've heard before, diversity is crucial to progress. Diversity enhances innovation and problem solving, but it's also a question of safety, says Dr. Ochoa. When you're working to keep astronauts safe in a hazardous environment, she says you need to ensure that all vital information from all voices is heard. Finally, let's take hope from the progress that's been made in bringing women into the sciences and into the space program. And let's look forward to that day in the not too distant future when we'll see the first woman on the moon. Tune in next Thursday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear.
0: Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner p Have a great day.
2: Infinity
1: presents a new chapter in luxury. and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here.
2: And I'm Austin Hankwitz.
1: We're the hosts of Mind
4: the Business, small business success stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks.